on the agenda this evening, we're going to start Galatians, and my guess is Galatians will probably take about three weeks, maybe four, since we're going to do kind of a long introduction today. And the perspective I'm going to take is that there are three letters, if you will, two from Yeshua and one from Paul, and they all deal with the same subject. And as I said on Shabbat, the seven kingdom parables in Matthew 13 correlate with the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, which correlate with the seven pastoral letters that Paul writes to different cities. Now, some of the cities have two letters, like Corinthians gets two letters, Thessalonica gets two letters, so forth. And then he's got you know, letters to Timothy and Philemon and so forth, and those aren't in that mix. So up on the board behind me is a matrix which shows the correlation. And this one came from Chuck Missler. He had a series on Revelation where he was doing the seven letters, and he's going from Revelation backwards. What I'm doing is I'm going from Paul outwards. So to very quickly read it for those out in streaming land and those in podcast land, however you want to describe that, across the top are the seven churches in Revelation. Remember, I told you Chuck Missler is coming at this from Revelation. It's a Revelation study. Across the top, there are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Missler also correlates the seven churches with stages of the Sunday church, going through historical development of how the church developed. So Ephesus would be the early church, Smyrna would be the persecuted church, which is when people were getting fed to the lions and that kind of stuff. Pergamos, which means mixed marriage, is when the church joins the world. And then Thyatira is the Catholic Church. Sardis would be the Reformation. Then Philadelphia would be Church and Revival. And then finally Laodicea would be what he calls the Apostate Church. And those roughly correlate to time. Now, for example, the Catholic Church is still in existence. So it isn't the case that some of these things have phased out. The parables in the same order then is the parable of the sower is Ephesus. Smyrna is the tares and the wheat. Pergamos is the mustard seed. Thyatira is the woman in the leaven. Sardis is the treasure in the field. Philadelphia is the pearl, and Laodicea is the dragnet. And then Paul's letters, Ephesus is Ephesus. <laughs> it's sort of like God points that out to us. Uh, these are all the same, and I'll get to what the subjects are in a minute here. So Ephesus goes with Ephesus. Smyrna goes with Philippians. Pergamos goes with Corinthians. Missler calls it the letter of the Californians. Thyatira goes with Galatians. Sardis goes with Romans. Philadelphia goes with Thessalonians. And then Laodicea goes with Colossians. So let me briefly explain what the correlation is in the Ephesians because that's very clear. As I say, it's the first letter, the first parable, etc. So it Sort of like, ding, 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 pay attention to this. So the Ephesian church was sort of Paul's home church, you know, where all the apostles were. One of the things about the Ephesians was 
they really got pumped up on doctrine. So when you get to the letter in Revelation, what Yeshua says is, you guys have been able to see these apostles who are false, and you've been able to point them right out. They're really, really good at doctrine. The problem that Yeshua has with Ephesus is they've lost their first love. 25 years ago, I used to be on an end times internet discussion group when everything was text before we could do videos. And one of the participants who was a friend got to know her fairly well, but she sort of went off the rails. She saw her ministry as exposing heresies. And she became very harsh and very bitter. She was always looking for slight deviations in doctrine and yelling at people and so on. In fact, she finally threw me off the list. She was a list administrator. And I wrote a letter to her and said, you're way, way too harsh on this stuff. And she pitched me off the list. So the letter to the church in Ephesus in Revelation is talking about a church that is very, very sound on doctrine and theology, but got no human kindness. Well, if you read the letter to the Ephesians that Paul wrote, great emphasis on love, great emphasis on getting along. And they all correlate this way. I did a study on this a number of years ago, and I'm not going to repeat that here. I just want to get everybody oriented. So what you have is three letters, three messages, however you want to describe them, that are from three different perspectives. So Yeshua in the parables is looking at it from his perspective before the cross. Yeshua comes as an Old Testament prophet, and the job of an Old Testament prophet is to go to Israel, slap them around, and say, you guys have gone off the rail, you need to repent, you need to get back in line. And if you don't, bad things are going to happen. That's sort of the office of a prophet in 25 words or less. So Yeshua comes in that role off the bat. He says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's his message. Well, in Matthew 12, there's a watershed. And the watershed is where they attribute the works that Yeshua is doing to Beelzebub. At that point in his ministry, Yeshua does a switch. He quits speaking plainly and he starts speaking in parables. So if you read Matthew 13, when he gives the parable of the sower, his disciples get him off to one side. He says, what are you talking about? we got no idea what this means. And what he tells them is, I will explain it to you. It's given to you to understand, but to the rest of these people, they will not understand. And he quotes from Isaiah 6, which is make their hearing dull and their eyes dull so they won't understand. Because when they attribute the works of God to Beelzebub, at that point, God, Yeshua, decide, okay, out of the pool. You're going back into exile, which, of course, they do within 40 years after the crucifixion. So these parables that he's speaking of, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. 
So they're obviously called kingdom parables. The parable of the sower talks about doctrine, talks about the word of God. That's the subject of the parable of the sower. That's also the subject of the letter to the Ephesians. You guys got your doctrine right, but you got no human love in you. And then the letter to the Ephesians that Paul writes is, hey guys, you got to love one another. And so the letter to the Ephesians that Paul writes is all about love and human relationships. Okay? Everybody got the lay of the land. As I say, I'm not going to go through all seven of these. So where I want to go next is Thyatira. And Thyatira correlates with Galatian, and it correlates with the woman in the leather. So that's where we're going to start tonight. We're going to start on Galatians, and I'm going to start with the woman in the leaven, and I'm going to explain as best I can why those correlate. So we're going to Matthew 13, verse 33. And by the way, I will warn you, depending on what version of Scripture you have, there will be a word difference here that I'll talk about. So Matthew 13, 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, mine translates it as hid in three measures of flour. Many of your Bibles will have mixed into three measures of flour. Buried, same thing. And all of those translations are okay. The Greek word means to mix or to hide, as in stuffing cheese into pasta kind of hide. You know, you're hiding the cheese in the pasta. It's that kind of hiding. So I will tell you why I like hide because mixed and buried in English has a very different connotation than hide does. So if you take yeast and you mix it up into your dough, okay, that's what you got to do to make bread or biscuit. No lesson there. If, however, you take it and you hide it, there's a different connotation that you're doing something in secret. I think that's the better translation given what happens to Galatians and given what happens in Thyatira. There's nothing wrong with your Bible if it says mixed or buried or whatever. Those are all perfectly legitimate translations, but I happen to like hidden because of some other stuff that goes on in the other letters. By the way, the three measures of flour, everybody in the Middle East knows that the three measures of flour is a hospitality thing. And it comes from Genesis. Remember when Abraham does lunch with the two angels and God? He tells Sarah, quick, go get three measures of fine flour and bake cakes for these guys. That's the origin of it. It's hospitality. So now let's bounce forward to Revelation. And I'm going to be down in two. So this is to the church in Thyatira. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Notice, by the way, those are both symbols of justice or judgment. If the judge looks at you with eyes like a flame of fire, you know you're in trouble. And similarly, the feet like burnished bronze is again a metaphor for judgment. I know your works. 
your love and faith and service and patient endurance, that your latter works exceed the first. First thing, commendation. And by the way, again, according to Missler, historically, this is the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church has always been good about works. They're very good at that. And they have stood fast against abortion or in the forefront of taking care of the poor, all those kinds of things. Mother Teresa was not an aberration. She was well within the mainstream of Catholicism. So this idea of, I know your love, your works, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, all of that very much would apply to the Catholic Church if that taxonomy is correct. Verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So the problem here is a woman, not a woman, but feminine, if you will. And what she's doing is she is leading the faithful away from the worship of God to false worship. That's what Jezebel did. Remember, Jezebel was from Tyre. She was a princess. She married Ahab, the king of the northern kingdom, and she proceeded then to bring down hundreds of priests of Baal, and she led the northern kingdom away from God, and she persecuted the prophets of Jehovah. Stop there for a minute. That, in a nutshell, is why I like the word hidden for the woman in the leaven because leaven represents sin throughout Scripture. And by the way, you will hear Sunday preachers say that leaven represents the gospel. I do not agree with that. And if you've heard a Sunday preacher say that, God bless him, but I think he's wrong. Leaven uniformly represents sin everywhere else, except in some preacher's view in that parable. It's the only place it represents something besides sin. And I'm sorry, sorry, don't buy it. But the idea then is something small comes in, brought by a woman, and permeates the entire body of flour until everything is corrupt. Now, if you're making bread, that's what you want to have happen. But in the context of the letter, the parable, and Paul's letter to the Galatians, What we're really talking about here is false doctrine, worship of idols, bringing in pagan practices. That's the context then in all three of these notes. And one of the things that the Catholic Church did historically is they brought in all sorts of pagan stuff into the church. You know, you've got Christmas and Easter and You've got statues of saints, icons, all that stuff. You've also got celibate priesthood, which is not Hebrew at all. You've got 
the veneration of Mary. You've got transubstantiation. None of those things are biblical, but they've all come in and become part of the doctrine of the Catholic Church. Interesting, my dear wife has been corresponding with a Catholic. She grew up Catholic, so she speaks the lingo. And this woman says, well, the only thing that counts is eating the body and drinking the blood. Interestingly, having lay people drink from the cup is recent. Originally, the laymen were not allowed to drink from the cup. They were given a wafer, the bread, but the priest was the one that drank from the cup. Anyway, the subject of both the parable and the letter to Thyatira is the introduction of false stuff into the church. Seeing leaven as a metaphor for sin, here it says it explicitly, that she's bringing in food sacrifice to idols and so forth. So there's no question in the Revelation letter. I'm all the way down to verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, so what we've got is a church that has got corruption at the top, but you've got a lot of faithful people that are not at the top. So, for example, this woman that my wife is corresponding with, very sincere, and she's been taught the way she's taught, but she's not an idolater or anything like that. She's very sincere. So these are the people that are being talked about here. Is there are going to be people in that church who are not corrupt? So 24 again. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, and who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Yeshua could not be more clear here what his problem is, or what their problem is. Food sacrificed to idol, the deep things of Satan. I mean, it's pretty clean. 25. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. That's Psalm 2. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. You as an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And according to one of the commentaries I read, this is the first church that is told they're going to be there at the second coming. And indeed, the Catholic Church is still here. And as far as I know, shows no signs of going away. So those are Yeshua twice on the same subject. Once before his crucifixion, the second after his resurrection. Talking about the same subject in both cases. Now, what I'm going to tell you is that Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, is going to also talk about that subject. To give you some background in history, although I'm sure all of you know it, we had Messianic Jews at the time Paul is writing, which is to say... They believe that Yeshua rose from the dead. They believe that their sins are forgiven. Tongue-talking, water-walking, all that kind of stuff. They're Christians, but they also believe that in order to be saved, you must be circumcised. And, of course, 
adult male circumcision is a big deal. That's why they do it as infants when the little guys can't run away. So if, in fact, the church had insisted upon adult male circumcision, Christianity would have remained a sect of Judaism. It would not have spread like it did. There have always been proselytes, which are to say Gentiles who come into the synagogue, recognize the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as one true God, and decide they want to join Israel and become Jews. And there's a procedure to do that. They're called proselytes. And they go through some training and so forth, and at the end they're formally circumcised. It's a big deal. For an adult, it's a really big deal. So what's happened here, and what Paul is writing, is after he has planted the church in Galatia, which is in modern-day Turkey, some Jews of the circumcision party have come through and have said, yeah, 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 we know what this guy Paul tells you, but let us explain what you really need to do. And what they've said is you really need to get circumcised and follow the traditions of the elders. So Paul now has heard about this, and he's writing to that church. And one of the things I will tell you, if you haven't read it in a while, is Paul is more than half ticked. He's angry. He uses very strong language. At one point, he calls them, you stupid Galatians. This is not a gentle, friendly letter. Later on, he'll say, I wish that the people who are doing this to you would emasculate themselves. So as you read this, understand that he is being hyperbolic and dramatic and angry. So there's some things that he'll say that are pretty stark, and if you take those then in that spirit as doctrine, they can lead you astray. So, let's start. So I'm in Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Yeshua Messiah and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches in Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua Messiah, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Fairly standard introduction. But notice one of the things that he says right up front. I'm an apostle, and I did not get my authority from man. And of course, you're all familiar with the history where he's on the road to Damascus to persecute the church, gets knocked off his ass, and gets a vision of Yeshua. Now, what he's going to do here is he is going to go through his credentials. Because one of the things that we can infer has happened is these people coming down from Jerusalem to Galatia, and one of the things they're saying is, we know this guy Paul told you that, but we know better. And what Paul is doing, authenticating himself, is saying, no, they don't. They do not know better than I do. I am telling you the straight thing, and furthermore, I am at least as smart as they are, and certainly better connected to God. So that's what this next section is going to be. And as I say, Paul is ticked. So now all the way down to verse 6. 
you know, we've got a reasonably polite introduction, except, as I say, this thing where he says, I'm not an apostle because somebody laid hands on me. I'm an apostle because Yeshua and the Father made me one. So that's the first step in his authority, if you will. Verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Messiah and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we preach to you, let him be accursed, as we have said before. So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Strong letter to follow. Paul is not mincing words, and he's angry. And one other thing, this is what precipitates the conference in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, where Paul and Peter show up and they duke it out with the circumcision party in front of the elders of the Jerusalem church. This is the kind of stuff that precipitated that conference. And I am inferring that as the letter is written, that conference has not yet taken place because Paul doesn't cite the letter as authority. Verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So he's laying out that we're not talking about a political movement here. The thing about politics is you got a horse trade and you got to go back and forth and you got to find something that's amenable to most of your party so that you can get something done. What he's specifically saying is, I'm not doing any of that. My authority is from God. I don't really care what anybody else has to say. Now down to verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Yeshua Messiah. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. Notice again, we have Pharisaic Jews coming down and questioning what Paul told them. So, you know, obviously he says, I got it in a vision. But the other thing he says is, hey, within Judaism, I was a hot rock. I was a real hot shot in Judaism. And I was extremely zealous for the traditions of the fathers, which is to say the oral Torah. So what he's doing sort of sideways here is he said, if we're going to be Jewish here, I'm better than they are. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. What he's saying is, 
I did not get this from men. Now, when it says he went away to Arabia, what that means is he went to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is in Arabia. So when he got the revelation, he picked himself up and headed to Mount Sinai, where he spent time with God. And that's where he got the gospel that he preaches. And after that, he came back to Damascus, which is where he started his trip, remember? He's going to Damascus, he gets smacked, goes into Damascus, gets his eyes restored, and then beats feet to Sinai, and then comes back to Damascus. Verse 18. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Silesia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Messiah. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. All the way on to chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So we're now either 14 or 17 years into his ministry. Not sure whether the 14 is after the three or included in the three. Just don't know the answer to that. So he's now going up to the home office in Jerusalem and talking to some of the men who knew Yeshua personally, telling them what he's doing to sort of get a quality control check. So all the way down to verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Here's where we get to the subject of the letter, what the problem is. Adult circumcision. Now, Paul does not have any problem whatsoever with circumcision. Because one of the things that he will do is he will take Timothy, who is a Jew, and uncircumcised. Timothy's mother was Jewish, father was Gentile. Timothy was not circumcised as a baby. When Timothy becomes Paul's sidekick, Paul has him circumcised. So it is not the case that Paul objects to circumcision. What he's doing here is he's saying... Gentile converts coming into the church do not need to be circumcised. In other words, you do not need to become an ethnic Jew to be a member of the kingdom of God. And so he's using Titus here as an example. So he's saying, okay, I went up to the home office, met everybody there. I had this guy Titus with me. Titus is a Gentile. He wasn't circumcised. Nobody said a word. That's what's being said there. Three again. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Messiah Yeshua, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, 
so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Notice the metaphor there. You've got somebody slipping in secretly. Remember back in the parable of the leaven. We have the woman hiding the leaven in the bread. Similarly, when we get to the letter to Thyatira, we have a woman bringing in false doctrine, and she is likened unto Jezebel, who comes into Israel via a state marriage and brings with her a whole bunch of priests of Baal and winds up corrupting the northern kingdom and persecuting the prophets of God. Notice this metaphor of things that start small or secretly. So verse 5 again. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed to be influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry of the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So what he's by way of authentication saying is I went back to guys who got their name in the Bible, Peter, John, James, Yeshua's brother, and I showed them what I was doing. I showed them that I had a franchise for the uncircumcised, just like Peter had the franchise for the circumcised. They listened to what I was doing, and they said, carry on, you're doing good. The conflict that you've got here is, of course, ethnic Jews of the circumcision party have come down and said, this guy Paul didn't tell you the whole story. There's more to it. Yeah, you got the Holy Spirit. Yeah, you've been saved, all that kind of stuff. But in order to be saved, you really need to get circumcised. And what they're implying about Paul is Paul is a lone ranger out there. Doesn't have any authority from anybody. He's just a guy that, not to put too fine a point on it, looked into his hat and found some copper plates and started a new religion. That's what Joseph Smith did. So they're sort of implying that Paul is out there like a loose cannon, not telling you the whole story. So what he's doing is he's going back to Jerusalem, to the mother church, and to the people who knew Yeshua personally, and he is saying, I told them what I'm doing, and they say, you go, guy, you're doing just fine. All of this we've had so far, chapters 1 and 2, have to do with authority. And you can be a Joseph Smith, and you can look into your hat and find some copper plates, and you'll find a whole bunch of people to believe you, but a whole bunch of people will not believe you for good reason. In fact, one of the things that the modern Jews say is one of the reasons they don't accept Yeshua and the gospel is because when God wanted to talk to the nation Israel, he got every 
Israelite at the foot of the mountain, and he talked to them all at once. There was no possibility that anybody there got the message wrong or got a different message or anything else. We were all there, and we all got the same word simultaneously. This guy, Jesus, he got 12 guys. If God had wanted to change things for us, he'd have brought us back to the mountain or somewhere equivalent, stood us all there like he did the first time, and said, all right, this is what I'm doing now. He didn't do that. That's one of the reasons that Jews today don't accept Christianity, this very idea of authority. And that's the same argument that's being made against Paul here. You got this single guy out there that says he heard from Jesus and he had a vision and he went off to Mount Sinai and he came back and he's got these copper plates and he is starting a new religion. All the way down to verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You all remember Peter and the sheep. The sheet comes down and God says, rise, Peter, kill, and eat, and so forth. And the thing Peter takes from that is that he shouldn't call a man unclean because of what he eats. Because Jewish oral law forbade Jews to enter the house of a Gentile or to eat with them. Now, there's nothing in the Torah that says that. The Torah does not prohibit eating with Gentiles. That is a Jewish oral law thing. So in the incident with the sheet, Peter was shown directly by God, it's okay to go into the house of a Gentile and eat. But later on, when he's in Antioch, he's been eating with Gentiles and they've been having fellowship and all that kind of stuff. And a bunch of guys from the circumcision party come down and start looking at him down their nose. Peter loses his nerve because of social pressure and separates himself from the Gentiles, as do the other Jews. It's sort of like you've got one of these people who come down and say, oh, you're really not doing that, are you? As they look down their nose, and, well, no, no certainly not. You know, it's, it's entirely social pressure. So what Paul does is calls them out. He says, wait a minute. You've been eating with Gentiles all the way up until these bozos showed up. You were right then, you're wrong now. Because what you're doing is you're presenting a bad witness to the Gentiles. Because one of the things that keeps Judaism separate is this refusal to share table fellowship. When that happens, what you're doing is you're endangering the spread of the gospel, which is why Paul jacks him up. But what he's doing here is he's saying to the Galatians... I have had run-ins with these Judaizing Pharisees before, stood up to them before, I'll stand up to them again, and I'm standing up to them now. Verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know 
that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Yeshua Messiah. So we also have believed in Messiah Yeshua in order to be justified by faith in Messiah and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. A couple of things going on there. This works of the law is a Jewish code phrase. What it talks about is doing things that are in the law. They're called works of the law. And he's obliquely referring all the way back to Abraham. Because remember, when God spoke to Abraham, it says specifically, Abraham believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So there's two things. Thing one is you can obey every speed law in the book. And if you then go and knock over a grocery store, the fact that you are a non-speeder and you are a traffic law keeper doesn't have anything to do with the fact that you just knocked over a grocery store. So all of the good stuff that you have done by keeping the speed limit, you knock over the grocery store, isn't going to help you a bit. Your lawyer is not going to be able to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, this guy never speeds. Well, so what? What does that have to do with the fact that he just robbed a grocery store? And so the idea here then is everybody falls short of the glory of God. We all do. And the fact that you are 99 and 44, 100% pure isn't good enough. The thing that justifies you before God is that you believe on Yeshua and that you accept him as your king and Messiah. Once you're under the kingdom, then you come under the law of the king and the judgment of the king, and the king is able to forgive you for your trespasses, which a judge is not. Quickly, there's three branches of government in the Torah as well as in our Constitution. There's executive, legislative, and judicial. Legislative makes the rules. Moses wrote them down. Judicial looks at behavior and compares them to rules and decides whether or not there's a violation. At least that's what they're supposed to do. That's their function. And theoretically, what they do is they apply the rule, look at the sentencing chart and say, you knocked over a grocery store, nobody was killed, three years. Pretty much mechanical. My job is to find out what happened accurately and then apply the law. The king is the one who can exercise mercy. That's what the executive pardon is all about. The executive is the one that has the pardon authority. Governors, president. The judge doesn't have pardon authority. Now the judge can decide you're not guilty. I'm not saying they're not powerful, but that's not their function. Similarly, the legislature can't do it either because all they do is write laws. So what is being said here is when you have faith in Yeshua and you come into his kingdom and he is your king, he is your executive, he has then the function and the authority to forgive you for your sins, to exercise mercy. All the way down to verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified by Messiah... We too were found to be sinners 
Is Messiah then a servant of sin? Certainly not. And that's what I was just talking about. He, as the executive, the king, has the ability to exercise mercy and to pardon. He's not your servant. He is your king. Verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So again, the idea is the law is the legislative side, and that can't make you righteous. It can only define when you transgress. So got a speed limit out there. Speed limit does not care as long as I stay under it. If I transgress and I go over the speed limit, then I may get a ticket. But the speed limit cannot make me innocent. My behavior is what makes me innocent or guilty. Elohim, 